Harris Eulen is a longtime and established actor, cementing the greatness of his career with prominent appearances on stage, in television, and in cinema for over half of a century. On Broadway, he's appeared in iconic representations of The Diary of Anne Frank and The Watch on the Rhine. In film, he may be most recognizable for various appearances in hits like Training Day and Scarface. More recently, he's contributed to popular and critically acclaimed television dramas such as 24, Billions, and Ozark. Harris Yulin, welcome to The Creative Process. We were talking there just before we began. Uh, talk about the beginnings of your, your acting life. You know, what drew you to You're born in Los Angeles, but you know, why? What was, what was the first thing that you saw that made you think this could be the life for me? I don't know that I ever thought that way. I think what I thought was that because I was, perhaps because I was in Los, not necessarily because I was in Los Angeles, happens all over. But various people were studying acting, trying to act. And I had a couple of friends, I guess when I was in high school, uh, that were in an acting class. So I went to it and I thought, well, maybe I could do that. So I tried it and it, it, it felt pretty good. It was pretty interesting. And then it took me a long time, many years, to decide that I would do this, mm -hmm. pursue it right. as a profession. Were you comfortable around the process, even from the beginning, or did it take... I mean, were you a shy person, or you were out, what, what, what were you like before you were, began? Well, I, I would say there was some... I was shy to a certain point, I guess. I guess more more than that, I was uh, drawn to it because I felt like I might be able to do it, and also because the doing of it made me feel, you know, alive in a certain mm -hmm. way that some other things didn't. Actually, it was not completely dissimilar to other things. It was a a response, a life response, as it were, a feeling of life, of being alive. And I thought there was more there. I think that we who work in the arts in the arts are so lucky because it is so many other professions are more like like going along, you ask people, what do you do? Well it's my job. But in the arts it's sort of like it can be a struggle, but it's not a job per se always. No, usually not. I mean, you, when you're doing it steadily, then you get mm -hmm. to complain about it. Mm -hmm. And you say, I don't want to go to the theater tonight. I feel mm -hmm. like doing something else. Mm -hmm. But that's only because you get to go to the theater mm -hmm. tonight that you can complain about it. So speaking of theater, because you've done, you know, film and quite a lot of television work too. Uh -huh. uh, could you speak of your, your different loves, the, you, your first roles in theater and, and the difference between the, your film and television acting? The difference is, is vast, but, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's the same route. Mm -hmm. It's just the techniques are, some of the techniques are very different. And the theater, I, I really know theater but because that's where I started. It's where most actors, I think, start. Or maybe not anymore, mm -hmm. I don't know. But, well, mostly actors I know mm -hmm. because 
uh, we're here in New York. So, yeah, I just started doing, uh, I, I went at a very haphazard way. I had a very haphazard approach. It was not uh, orderly at all because I didn't go to a, a proper school or anything like that. I know my wife went to Central Drama School in London. Friends of mine went to Lambda, RADA, American Academy or acting schools here, but I never did. And I went uh, after fooling around in Europe for uh, almost a couple of years, uh, just because I was uh, gotten out of the army and didn't really know what to do or how mm -hmm. to do it. And so I just went mm -hmm. uh, for a couple of years. And while there, I, I did some acting, mm -hmm. but nothing very remarkable, mm -hmm. except doing a nightclub show with William Burroughs. That was kind of oh, remarkable in retrospect. Yeah. Not at the time. It was great fun. But. So, and I did a little bit of studying with a person here or there. Mm -hmm. A man named Jeff Corey in Los Angeles is a wonderful actor and had been blacklisted right. and took up teaching. And by the time I came along in the 50s, he was the acting teacher to go to in Los Angeles. So I went to him and we became friends. And uh, I learned a few things from Jeff. And then when I came back to New York, and I didn't when I was in the Army, and then I went to Europe. And then when I came back to New York, I went to somebody's class for a, a few times. It helped me a great deal. He just mm -hmm. said something to me one day that made complete sense and changed something uh, or opened a particular door. Anyway, so, and then I just learned by doing it. I just went to auditions and I got part and I thought I could just go and, you know, get the most interesting things I, I could find and do them, wherever I had to go to do them. So I went here and there, Philadelphia, Boston, or wherever it was. Right. What were the, the principles of the, the advice that you were given, or the principles of the, like, the basis that you were given? You said that it opened a door. I don't know if it, if it has a larger idea, but the idea was, at that time, that I was... I was going to play a play called Beckett, which is about Thomas Beckett and King Henry II. I wanted to play Beckett. Mm -hmm. And uh, the people who were doing the play wanted me to play King Henry. So being that I couldn't convince them to play Beckett, I said, okay, because mm -hmm. King Henry was great too. That was the happiest solution for me because had I played King Henry, at that point, I would have been all in my head. It would mm. have been in my head. Mm. Because Beckett was very much a head trip. It was mm. about a guy, in one sense, a, a, a man who, you know, was a kind of ne'er-do-well and a libertine and a mm. wild character, mm. uh, along with his pal Henry, King Henry. Yeah. And then King Henry made him the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he became a serious person and concerned with the honor of God to such an extent that he had to defy the king, his best friend, which led to his own his, death, yes. finally. Anyway, so that's the story of the play. And had I played Beckett, I would have really enjoyed tussling with the idea of the honor of God and how mm -hmm. this, what, what this conflict was all about. 
mm-hmm. in Beckett. But I was playing King Henry, so the issue was really something else. The issue was whether do you love me or do you not? That was a more, let me say, a more visceral mm-hmm. idea. It just happened that at that time in my life, that was the thing that I needed to do. I needed to find something out about myself and about that idea or that feeling. And uh, I had met this acting teacher. I had gone to uh, his class, I guess, a few times. Mm -hmm. And then I got this part playing King Henry. So I went to, the next time I went to the acting acting class, I did an improvisation based Mm -hmm. on the play based on Mm. Henry and Beckett. And then after, I think it was after that class, that I was walking across Central Park with this teacher, Alan. We were passing a cave-like structure. And then he said, Henry is like, and he kind of reached in the cave or he walked over to it and he said, you've got to, he needs to touch it to know it's true. Mm. He's got, he's tactile. It's all about touching realities for him. You know, the honor of God is kind of nonsense Mm -hmm. to him. He doesn't understand what, you know. Well, whatever it was that he said, and I'm just kind of approximating the idea, it just kind of opened a door very wide all of a sudden in my head. And I felt that that's what it's about. And so when I started rehearsal for that play, it was a whole different thing than I had heretofore experienced. It was on a whole different level of feeling for whatever reason. I had come to New York and I had auditioned for a play and I had gotten a part, a leading part in this play, in which I was terrible in. And I was not really there in the play, you know, I was not really uh, at one with myself or anything else. You've played quite significant characters from history or the history of drama, uh, history of theatre, you know, quite decisive men in the world as I think about it. And how, could you discuss, you know, how you've approached those different roles that have been important to you? And let's just talk about your theatrical career. Well. If I have a, you know, historical character like whoever, J. Edgar Hoover, mm-hmm. who I think I was the first person to play on the yeah. film, McCarthy or George Marshall or whoever. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've done tons of them, but, you know, I just do all the research I can do. I do, you know, I do tons of research or as much as I can do in whatever time's allowed. I think a couple of years ago, we did a HBO film of Muhammad Ali's greatest fight. And it was about his fight before the Supreme Court. So I played one of the justices in the court, Douglas. And I did, you know, a lot of research about Douglas, who I liked anyway, so it was easy to do. But I do much more than was, you know, than I might need. Mm-hmm. But I do whatever, it's just one way to... Well, I just played Nixon. Oh, So I had, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this summer mm-hmm. up at Sag Harbor, actually. 
So I did, you know, as much as I could do, as much reading as I could do, mm -hmm. and watching tapes and things about Nixon. You just do all the research that you have time to do or it's possible to do, and that seems applicable to the particular thing. And Willie Loman is, you know, is a fictional character. Yeah. So the only history of Willie Loman is the people who played him. Mm -hmm. And I don't go and look at the people who played him and mm -hmm. how they played him. What I do do then is just consider the time of the, the time and the milieu of the play and try to see what's available then. You know, so you surround yourself with the, the time and the environment of the mm -hmm. play. And then try to learn the lines. And in terms of your background and your parents, what were their relationship to the arts? Were they supportive of you? And did what were their what is their background? No, they weren't uh, particularly uh, supportive, or uh, they were hoping that I would do something else. Ah, they tried to nudge you elsewhere. Yeah, they tried, and but it didn't work. And then you know once. It was, uh, I don't think I saw them or, you know, we had that much, we had contact, of course, but I, uh, I guess the first time I returned to California where they lived was when I came out there to do uh, a television show, mm -hmm. my first TV show. Right. And uh, I remember uh, the first two things I did, I came out there to do... Uh, uh, an Arthur Miller play, Incident of Vichy, mm -hmm. on television. Then the second thing I did was uh, an adaptation for an after-school special, it was called, oh, yeah. of a Henry, a Henry James story okay. called The Aspirin Papers. Oh, yeah. But that wasn't what it was called. It was called something else. Anyway, it was a sort of Sunset Boulevard story. Right. You know, where a young guy... I was young then, a young guy, and it's an older woman, and mm -hmm. he's kind of a gigolo character. And in the Incident Vichy story, Arthur Miller's story, it's about Jews being rounded up in France in the German occupation to be sent to wherever, mm -hmm. Auschwitz or wherever. I'm the last of the two characters to be sent away. Mm -hmm. And we have a scene with this uh, wonderful actor in Robert Jordan, died now. He, he, he's a non-Jew, he's a nobleman, aristocrat, and gives up his papers to me so I can get out of there in the play. That's the play. And it's a, you know, it has a lot of darkness in there naturally because there's, you know, where it's set and what's happening. And my father said, uh, when he saw both of these things, he said, you know, I really liked it in that Henry James story he said because you had a really nice jacket <laughs> and, and, and uh, you were he said but I didn't like the other one the incident of Vichy I said why not because we have Jews after uh -huh. all and uh, he said well you look so unhappy I said well I was being sent to Auschwitz I wasn't yeah. pleased about it but he accepted it you know finally and 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 then he thought well it was okay because I was working yeah, so, once that, the stamp of, like, yeah, you'll, be, so you'll be all right. It was okay, and other people saw me because it was movies or television or whatever, mm -hmm. you know. So it was okay. Although, 
Oh, no, no, they came to New York before that and saw me in a play. It was also a play about Auschwitz. Right. I never okay. thought of that. My God. And I was playing the sort of the moral authority of the prisoners in this play. Right. You know, they came to see that, and I, I don't think he, he liked that much, which is interesting because he came to this country, yeah. uh, you know, from the Ukraine, because of the pogroms in yeah. Russia and the Ukraine in the uh, 1890s. You don't have family then who, um, who were in the, were camps in the Holocaust. In the no, Holocaust. because they all, both my mother and my father's family were here. Right, because I know you spent some time in Tel Aviv when you were, I guess, towards during your wandering years through Europe and then... Um, yeah, I spent. I was, I was there for about three months. Yeah, I th I considered staying there. Yeah, because there was, it was a, a very amenable place to me, mm -hmm. in the sense of, uh, you know, there was a certain kind of, intellectual and aesthetic, excitement, mm -hmm. in Tel Aviv. People were anxious to do things and, create things mm -hmm. and. Even though this was before the '67 war that I was there, wow. I mean, I was there twice. I was there later too. But in those days, it was uh, it was a very different place. Mm. Well, it's an, such an old country, but such a new country too. So that yeah, yeah. I mean, it had you know, Tel Aviv was not in a, in a way unlike Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. you know, architecturally, there was right. a lot of similarity but of course in other ways it's completely different and is a fascinating and interesting country and an exciting kind of country and didn't have all of the horrible complications that have ensued since the 67 war and since the occupation mm -hmm. you know which has led to the chaos and the craziness mm -hmm. that we now enjoy but there are great artists, uh, writers, performers from that region, and people have told me who yeah. live there, who still live there, you know, that it is a great place to create, I guess, because there is a part of this to do, unfortunately, with the, the ongoing conflict, you know, that that creates this tension that's good for art, but may be bad for other aspects of life, right? Um, but I thought that was interesting. I didn't, mm -hmm. I didn't realize how much that might feed into your art, you know? Yeah. You know, it puts an existential edge on mm -hmm. it. Yeah. You know, even in when I was there in 1962, I guess it was, it's it still, you were still in a place that you felt was threatened, was constantly threatened. There was mm -hmm. a, an abiding tension, mm -hmm. you know, and perhaps that was some, you know, part of it that created this kind of, I, I can't imagine. I can't. I can't imagine. Uh, you know, we've had. I live in Paris, and we've had incidents, and but it's not like a, a daily thing. I can't imagine living in the state of a kind of constant vigilance or tension. And, you know, we've worked with amazing directors and actors. Uh, you just speak about some of those memorable experiences and what you, you took away from those performances. In the beginning of your career, who was important to you as a kind of mentor figure or was important to your evolution as an actor? 
Well, the acting teacher that I told yes. you about mm -hmm. was the first, or no, Jeff, mm -hmm. Jeff Corey would have been the first, and then he would have been the second. But then a figure that I ran into named Max. I met Max when I was, I was doing Henry V, and I met Max socially. Mm -hmm. He was a teacher of Judy Collins, who mm -hmm. was then still now a friend of mine. Oh, wonderful. So he was a voice teacher. Yeah. And we talked, and he asked me what I was doing, and I said, I'm doing Henry V, and he asked me how it was going. I said, well, not very well. And Max, as it turned out, was not only a Judy singing teacher, but he had taught opera singers. He was, uh, he played uh, the violin. He had been a boxer. He was a man of many parts, mm -hmm. and he had a particular affinity for dramatic poetry, dramatic verse. Yeah. So uh, I, he, he asked me more closely about Henry V, and I mm -hmm. told him why I was not happy with it. Uh -huh. And he said, well, what about this and what about that? And what he said started to make a lot of sense. Yeah. And he said, if you want to do some work together, something like that. And my other friend, Stacy Keach. Actor, right, you've worked a lot with him, yeah. With Stacy. And Stacy was working with Max mm -hmm. on dramatic poetry. So okay. I started working with Max. And Max was a revelation. He was so uh, uh, original mm -hmm. and, and interesting and seemed absolutely right on the money. Mm -hmm. So uh, Max was definitely a, a mentor figure. And I later took him with me when I directed uh, uh, Shakespeare in uh, Texas and, and uh, had Max with me working with the cast and everybody, uh, you know, profited greatly by working with Max. And now when I teach, I'm really using everything Max taught me. What did he unlock for you about dramatic verse? For Max, it was about well, it was about everything, you know, but the way to approach it was through clarity. Mm -hmm. So that not only did you know exactly what you were saying, mm -hmm. but how to say it. I'll just give you an example. Mm -hmm. I was in Hollywood and I was playing Shakespeare, mm -hmm. the character Shakespeare. Oh, you've seen that, okay. Yeah, one of Steve Allen's shows called okay. Meeting of the Mind. Oh, okay. We take these historical character uh -huh. people and well anyway, so I was doing that and I was doing a sonnet and then I would do the sonnet and then I would run into the control room and look at it because I was directing this segment of it. So I'd look at it and it was not right. I just didn't like the last conclusion of the last couple lines was wrong and I couldn't find out what I couldn't figure out what was wrong or how to correct it quite. So I called Max. And Max was home, and he picks up the phone. I said, Max, listen to this. It's not the, here's the, and he said, and he listened, and he said, well, you're just uh, emphasizing that word. And maybe if you can just kind of lift it hmm. instead. Well, that was the answer yeah. to it. You know, there, there were, you know, it's a whole kind of technique which I couldn't explain. But it's kind of like listening to the music of it, the tones and... Well, 
Yes, I mean, that's part of it too. But, you know, people have all kinds of weird ideas, especially in this country, about how to do Shakespeare. Right. You know, most of which are, are wrong. <laughs> and Max could approach it, he approached it with a certain kind of simplicity. Uh-huh. You know, he didn't bother with scansion and that kind of thing, and uh-huh. babapa and the iambic pentameter. He knew what all those things were, of course, but, you know, he was going for a, a, a kind of lift and a boy, you know, to embrace the buoyancy of the language mm-hmm. and, and the clarity to make, how do you make it clear mm-hmm. so that, you know, you've seen Shakespeare productions, I'm sure, yeah. and I have too, and you're saying, what the fuck are people talking about? What are they saying? Mm-hmm. You know, you're yeah. finding it hard to keep up often with what they're saying. Sure. And it seems, yeah, part of it is that maybe the actor in those instances is not believing it. They're not close enough to it. Because if you would act, if you believe and know the words, then you'll make, it'll be clear, I think. No, it won't. Oh, you mean you have to explain it more? Yeah, you have to find a way to make it clear. You can uh-huh. be, you know, you can be playing Hamlet and believe completely in the situation and in what he's saying. Because mm-hmm. he's always saying something very interesting. Yeah. And But if you say, I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth and forgot all custom, and you don't know how to deliver it, mm-hmm. then people are not going to understand it. They're not mm-hmm. going to get it. That's you have to know how to deliver it. Right. And so, as you played Hamlet um, or Shakespeare must be hard to play because then he he really inhabited he was you know all those characters himself imaginatively and how do you approach that because it's it's hard to know as well. He gives you a lot of clues about how to play things the clues Uh are in the text and there are lots of clues about it. My name is Brett Young an associate interviewer and podcast producer here at The Creative Process. In listening to Harris Eulen and looking into his filmography and theater resume, it's hard not to recognize a sense of spontaneity in the way that he's conducted himself over the decades. Without any acting lessons or much experience, it's interesting to hear him describe how he abruptly chose to travel to Europe after his time in the army, exploring various forms of theater production in the process. With such a sudden change in career path, it's clear that Harris has a unique ability to adapt, something which has helped him in numerous ways. In describing his assignment to play Shakespeare's King Henry, he explains that this wasn't his role of choice. Albeit, he says that the role of Beckett offered an opportunity to give representation to a simpler internal struggle, one which he could better relate to at that point in his life. What struck me most about this was how he describes this instance as a moment in his life in which he needed a simpler challenge in order to discover himself further as an artist. It seems almost as if Beckett would become a foundation which he would continue to add to over the decades. Upon returning to the States, he did decide to partake in some acting lessons, though it was satisfying for me to hear that he learned mostly by simply throwing himself into acting. And to do so, he made a point to search from city to city for roles that spoke to him and which he could fully immerse himself into. As Mia expresses early on, There's an intrinsic sense of realism in the way that he performs, whether it be comedy or drama. 
In his eyes and face, you see a level of authenticity that is hard to find. Undoubtedly, this is a product of years as a stage actor and director. It's this ambiance of truth which he brings to every role and scene he partakes in, an element which helps immerse viewers in whatever world Harris is helping to create. Though I myself am personally more familiar with his works in television and film, hearing about Ewellyn's early transitions from scripted theater to improv all the way to stage direction reveals just how much experience it takes to contribute in a meaningful way to so many legendary cinematic and television moments. While he isn't usually found at the center of the scene, Yulin's acting provides intimate detail to the backdrop of such a wide variety of memorable moments, including Tony Montana's abrupt coup over Miami Kingpins and Scarface, the hilarious opening trial to the comedy hit Ghostbusters 2, and numerous spoiler-worthy moments in Ozark. There was one particular aspect of his approach to acting that did genuinely surprise me, mainly his study of poetry, using it to better understand the rhythmic, almost musical aspects of dialogue, perfecting the presentation of his lines in the process. It's methods like these which are so unique, so original, that it makes one realize the intricacies of something that is made to look so natural. It reminds me almost of a boxer or a football player using ballet to improve his or her footwork. It's masterful approaches like these, which are what separate legends from the rest, perfecting commonly overlooked aspects of their profession. Overall, in listening to his early career choices and his versatility in performing and directing for the stage, it's hard not to admire how Harris has evolved into such a beloved member of so many entertainment mediums. Of, of those period pieces, I mean, maybe not as far, as far back as Shakespeare, but of the, the historical figures or period pieces you've played, do you have, you know, some favorites over the years that you really, wow, that, that gave you challenge, rewarding challenges that you've just embraced? Well, probably, but I, I don't think I remember anything, things that I play. You don't like to store them or you just like to move on to the next or...? Yes, mm -hmm. pretty much. I don't mm -hmm. think about it unless I think I'm going to do it again. Right. Like maybe King Lear, maybe I'll do again. Mm -hmm. I have that a little more toward the forefront of my mind mm -hmm. than I might otherwise. Sure. But no, I have things that I've enjoyed. You know, what I enjoy, strangely enough, strangely enough in one way, what I enjoyed enormously was playing Nixon which I didn't know that I was going to enjoy, and I even didn't know if I could do very well, mm -hmm. because I've never considered myself a very good mimic, you know. But it just, I had a great time, and, you know, we had a very good production. Mm -hmm. So I really enjoyed Nixon. What was it about his character, his life, that you just, or was it that particular angle of the production that... Well, it was... Uh, it was, of course, what you know, what we chose to do in the production, and what was chosen uh, to explicate his character. But he was a very intelligent person who had a lot of talents, a lot of gifts, and had real flaw, real mm -hmm. kind of a, almost a Shakespearean tragic flaw. Yeah, you know, this blinding insecurity sense of being less than 
you know, he was supposed to be, even when he was president. Yeah, it's it's it seems like a, such a pity in some ways because I do think that he had those flaws, but there were some admirable aspects. Or it could have, I guess, this is like all tragedy. Uh, it could have, he could have, it could have been a heroic character arc, you know, if stopped at a certain moment, you know, from, you know, his trajectory was not obviously one, you know, where he was born was not one that you would think he would become president at all. No, no. Uh, and yet he did that, what a triumph. And then if you stop there, then that's a heroic story, but then, of course. Yeah, uh, but, you know, his own, anyway, he was, it was wonderful. Uh, uh, playing him because right. in playing him you could play sort of his best qualities and also his I mean play there's plenty of room in the play for the mm -hmm. expression of his intelligence and what he really cared about mm -hmm. and what he tried to do mm -hmm. he was really making efforts to do the best thing to bring an era of peace in the world is what he wanted above yeah. all things what he was really wanted Sure, and in, in some ways in he achieved way. some. Yeah, he himself got, he got in his way. own way. And, you know, it's, it is interesting that, and I think history, you know, is will be kinder with him over time. Oh, now, now we see. I don't even want to get into the current president, but we see. I mean, when we make the comparison, subsequent presidencies, we can see the similarities in a big way, but we can also see that there was some some things that he was trying to get right and that he, he Oh did. yeah, and a lot of things yeah. he did get right. He did, yeah. And overseas, he's not seen in, in, in the same light as we see him here, mm -hmm. um, diplomatically and, and all of that. No, mm -hmm. it must be fascinating to to keep on, you know, reinventing yourself or inhabiting different people. I mean, I'm jealous of that, you know, because I'm just a painter, you know, who likes to write sometimes, but I, I don't get to live other lives. Uh -huh. It seems like such a gift, you know? Yeah, it's it's very enjoyable, mm -hmm. usually. I mean, most of the time, 98% mm -hmm. of the time. What is your, um, as I think about theater, as I think about television or film, do you have a favorite part of the process? Like, I mean, as you're beginning the role, as you're, you know, have you know unlocked it and you feel really settled into it is there you know what what really excites you you know I don't know that any one thing more than the other in terms of a part I mean always the uh, you know I love the rehearsal process mm -hmm. and you know that's in the theater you don't rehearse mm -hmm. film usually and you know finding it that discovery process mm -hmm. Uh, in film, it's you have, if anywhere, so you have very little and probably a scene that before you do it, you say, well, let's figure out what we're going to do here and how we're going to do it. Although I just came from an interview with someone who filmed with David Fincher, and apparently he is, I don't know if it's rehearsal, but a lot of takes. A lot of takes. A lot of takes. Yeah. Well, that's right. A lot of takes. And that's sometimes... Uh, good and sometimes not so good mm -hmm. because as the actor you know it can be good or it can also be not good because you have to keep doing it and mm -hmm. you may have already done it uh, you know to your own satisfaction or to the satisfaction of the demands mm -hmm. but other things are going on yeah he said they had to redo because there was a plant 
that was in a the plant. A plant. <laughs> exactly. So you're redoing it. The poor yeah. actors, you know, having to <laughs> redo sometimes very difficult scenes and yeah. do them again and again. Yeah. No, and that right. must be, yeah, that can, I imagine, be draining, unless you're, like, so obsessively loving, you know, a hundred takes, you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anybody's obsessively loving that, you know, to do a lot of takes. Yeah. You like to do it, or I like to do it, until I get it right. Mm -hmm. And then once I feel I've got it right, I say, okay. If mm -hmm. I, or as close to right as I'm going to get, mm -hmm. you know, that day. You kind of have a sense, this may be as close as you're going to get today. Yeah. So let's move on. Yeah. No, it's 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 nice that it's nice. Um, are particular are there particular editors? I was just with you know Tony Walton this morning. Are there particular directors uh, that you you know you've really you've had that great compatibility where you've just like almost like a shorthand that you didn't have to you know could you speak of their different directing styles you know. Uh -huh. um, and what you enjoyed, or maybe sometimes the the creative conflict, or like if they created tension that was useful. No, I can't think of any tension that has been useful. You know what I mean. Sometimes they kind of give you something to give a bit of a, a grist. Or well, something most directors like don't talk. You yeah. know, they don't say very much, uh -huh. which is good. I mean, the less said, usually the better. But. Uh, no, I can't think of any people of, you know, with tension. I mean, early on, but that was mostly my problem because, you know, I didn't know how to deal with it and hold mm -hmm. on to what I needed to do. So I, I could feel threatened. Mm -hmm. And once I felt threatened, I would respond in kind. Mm -hmm. And now you've, how did it come about that you started directing? Oh, I started directing when I started acting. Right from the start. Okay, I wasn't yeah. aware of that. And you know, yeah, yeah. And what do you like about that process? Do you know. Oh, what I love about that, about directing, what do I love about it? Well, I, I really like working with actors, and I feel that any problems that anybody may have, I've had it that problem. Right. So I feel that I understand that. And and then the creation and the enactment of the world mm -hmm. that we're in, how that world is is going to look mm -hmm. and be. And you know, and of course there are all these terrific people who are going to implement this vision. And this vision is going to be a collective vision, you know, but you've got to come to the way we do theater in this country, the director has to come in with an idea about what it's going to be. And then we start discussing, but you've got to come in with that so that by the time rehearsals begin, you're pretty much set in terms of set and everything and how that's going to work, you know. So it's the creation of that world. How is it going to, what are you going to do? How's it going to be if you're going to direct Richard III or The Winter's Tale or uh, uh, The Trip to Bountiful or Glass Menagerie? How's it going to look? How are you going to cast it? Mm -hmm. Where are you going to find the people? 
but how's it going to look? How's it going to be? What is it for you? Mm. You know, you get to do, create that world, mm. pretty much. Kind of nice to play God in a different yeah, it's way. Great. Yeah, it's great. Well, they great. get they, they get to play their roles, but you. As Mel yeah. Brooks says, it's good to be king. <laughs> Did you work with Mel Brooks? No, or I've you... known him for a long time, but uh, never worked must... together. He must be great. He's so playful and still like so Yeah, he's great. He's a wonderful, great man. And that brings me to, you know, because you have associated on the one hand with all these serious roles, but even in your serious roles, um, you know, you've done, you you brought a certain comedy to it, a certain wryness, or that's what I find anyway. That's good. I think what I was saying to you is that like, you look serious and gruff and world-weary, but also like, bemused by like this whole kind of game <laughs> that's what i feel though and i would have appreciated when and so what we were doing we we're talking about directing creating the world do you like to alternate between directing and acting or how does it like is it a controlled process like and what you'll decide to do next or just it has to appeal to you well there are a number of things one wants to do one wants to make a living right and uh, so, you know, you do a certain amount of things to make a living, but of course you can't do anything unless you really have some feeling for it. And then, uh, yeah, I would like to be directing much more. It's difficult to, you know, you have to make a commitment, of course, to do it, and so take a couple of months or three months, whatever it takes to direct it. But, you know, when opportunity arises, I haven't, I'm in a state right now where I don't have, for whatever reason, many ideas about what to do, yeah. you know, as a director. Mm-hmm. So I'm just uh, waiting and reading some stuff and uh, seeing what, what turns up. And I'm going to do some teaching mm-hmm. in the spring semester. Right. Where you do that? Columbia. Oh, great. We're working with Columbia. We're um, collaborating with them, the, the project. Is, oh, you are? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, more so to we, the writing department, not so the drama department, but yeah. What department? Uh, creative writing, and we've interviewed a number of their professors, like Richard oh, yeah? Ford, and yes, yeah, Sam Lipsight, who runs that. So, so in teaching, what do you get from teaching? What do you like to impart to your students? Because we're an educational initiative, so I love to... Oh, yeah. I love it. because Well, I'm teaching Shakespeare. Right. Oh, okay. The, the acting Shakespeare. Uh-huh. Uh, so I get to teach them what Max taught me, mm-hmm. you know, and carry that on. Uh, so I love that. And, you know, each person is different. And mm-hmm. so, you know, different strokes for different folks. And, mm-hmm. you know, you impart the information to this person very differently than you might impart it to that person. It's a great, and I always learn, people say that, you know, they teach and they learn, but it's very true. Of course, yeah. You're constantly learning as you're, mm-hmm. as you're supposedly the teacher, you may be the, the learner. I think so, or, or remembering what you already know, which, make, which turns it to long-term memory. You know, like you might just like vaguely know it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's why I like teaching. It can be it can be a sacrifice though, because you're kind of saying no to certain roles, maybe because if you can't, you have to be here yeah. for them. But yeah. I'm thinking of the arc of your acting career and your um, work in theater. 
and what the evolution of theater actually the other mediums too like film and television but what have you what have you noticed are we in terms of how vital a role that theater plays in our contemporary culture because we see it being edged out by other mediums mm -hmm. um, digital access and, and all those things you know what do you miss from the way theater was when you started out well it it seemed you know much easier to do when I started out it was much less expensive to do right to put on a play but what I've always missed is that you know or what I do miss is that sense of community which it seemed like there was more when I started out than there is yeah. now but I don't know because I'm sort of not really quite in the mix you know it's been I haven't done a play in New York I guess it's been about 10 11 12 years right and then I haven't done a play on Broadway for 17 years I think okay so I'm not really quite up on it but I, you know, theater has always been, you know, <laughs> been troubled mm -hmm. culturally, and and you know, culturally, it's not really troubled. I mean, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. It has a very small percentage of people that mm -hmm. go to theater, all in all. Yeah. But that's just the way it is. There are also mm -hmm. a very small percentage of people who go to opera, but opera is supported in a more grandiose fashion than yeah. theater usually is. And theater in this country has always been a kind of stepchild of whatever because it's always been different. You know, the idea of funded theaters and mm -hmm. having the Royal Shakespeare Company kind mm -hmm. of theater here has yeah. uh, never worked. Or if it has, it was long ago that it worked. Anyway, so everything changes. Yeah, and no, it is interesting. I mean, but you had great success also in, in television and film, so it's at least you've been able to transition and, you know, alternate between the different mediums. And that television is going, uh, you know, a renaissance in television. And you're in one of the, I think, well, I think, well, I don't want to a spoiler, but if you, in the, one of the great series you just finished up with, Ozark, and mm -hmm. I don't know what you're working on now. There may be other things that I am not aware of. Um, but I've um, really, I didn't used to watch television at all, like mm -hmm. a book snob, but the way it's just become so nuanced um, in a way that I didn't feel it was, like, 10, 15 years ago, it, didn't, it was harder to find those programs. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Sure, there's so much now. I don't yeah. watch it because I just, I don't have time. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, when I do delve into, do catch an episode of something, whatever mm -hmm. it might be, I'm invariably amazed by the quality of it, the quality of the writing. Mm -hmm. The acting, the direct, everything. You yeah. know, it's very high quality stuff. I think that they're paying it, uh, respecting the intelligence of viewers now. Yeah. Yeah. It's I mean, they're talking up, you know? Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Is there something, what are you working on now uh, in terms of, you know, new projects and things? You just did Nixon. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to do some teaching mm -hmm. and I'm, uh, doing a couple of television things. Mm -hmm. Oh, is it quiet? Oh, but they're not long-term things. Oh, they're just brief, okay. very brief. And theater things, I have I have nothing on 
Mm -hmm. uh, you know, nothing planned. Right. So, you know, I'm thinking about things and looking at things and would like to plan something for at least next year, you know, mm -hmm. next summer, let's say. Would you like to, to tour more? I know that you've you've heard you've you've um sorry you've acted abroad as I think in Ireland anyway. Did you do another? I did thing? salesman in Ireland yeah. in Dublin. Ah. I lived in Dublin for ten years. I'm did kind you? Of part Irish. Yes, yeah, I know. It's a great Ireland place, isn't well. it? I think for theatre too. I think for writing, it's uh, it's the a good place. Yeah, really good. I just yeah. went and saw the actors who played my boys in Death of a Salesman. Oh, okay. We're wow. here doing Waiting for Godot. Oh, okay. Right. The Druid Company, you know. Oh. Yes, I know the Druid Company. Yeah, I've seen them. Yeah. So uh, I went to see the production. Well, I'm sure they'd like. I like. They'd like you to return to Ireland for for a turn, if you. No, I would love to. My wife loved it. My daughter loved it. They all loved. It. Yeah. Everybody had a great time in Ireland. And what about, um, you know, I guess. Comparing because there's different approaches to theater uh, in different countries. Did you also uh, now you were talking because your um, Kristen um, she went to school in England as well. Uh -huh. she, she trained in England. So in terms of the different approaches, obviously to Shakespeare, you must notice different things. You know what do you appreciate about the different back the the different approaches? Well, I've I've worked in England and Ireland and some other. A couple of other places too, but uh, the approach in uh, in Ireland uh, for salesmen, we had an American director, and I was playing Willie Lomans, you know, and I didn't really notice any difference except there was a, and it's not that there's not here, but there's a level of professionalism and seriousness in in Ireland. Uh, that is really quite wonderful, mm -hmm. you know. It's I I have the feeling more the feeling there of you, you know. It's like a when you get a a group together to do a play. It's like a symphony orchestra. You don't doubt that anybody's going to be able to play it. Wow. That's kind of the basic, mm -hmm. you know. They can play it. Yeah. And just you know, there are other things that dictate how it's going to be cast. But everybody in that production of Salesman was top-notch. Right. Well, I think that, I, you know, from living there, um, there's a love of language here. New York has its own language and richness. But in Ireland, there is this deep love of language. And and because maybe it doesn't have it, oh, Hollywood, it has some, a few, you know, a few great directors, but it doesn't have these other... Uh, industries as developed so theater right. is natural you know that that's the option you're going to act you're going to be in theater maybe you might get seduced to hollywood you'll go you'll have to leave actually to make it you can't stay in your own country really to have a, a full career to that's right um so that yes people in the theater they love the theater and they really they're in it not just as a stepping stone to the next that's right. the next thing or they're not yeah. coming as a hollywood actor to like prove that they can do theater um, so that's what I've noticed, and also it might be a kind of a weather thing as well, where the visual arts weren't as developed. They had some great painters, but it's like they didn't have the access to all that. So it's in the language, it's in the writers. That's why yeah, the great writers and the great theater, they didn't have that and because they patronage. Do, like a, they do so many plays. Yeah. You know, well, they get they get very good at it. 
Yeah. Well, that's the other thing. Um, you know, it's interesting because, you know, people uh, complain or, uh, you know, the, the, the Hollywood system before actors were kind of more liberated and uh, what do you call it? You know, in the golden years of Hollywood, yeah. were you on contract? Uh-huh. But, you know, okay, maybe there were some bad films as well, or maybe actors were treated like uh, they were in a stable. But, you know, you do something, you do something, like in television, and you get really good at it. Yeah. And I can't even imagine, I mean, it's easy for me, I'm a painter. It doesn't cost, painting doesn't really cost that much. You just can be have to be alone in a room time. Mm-hmm. Uh but I can't imagine spending half your energy or a quarter of your energy just getting the budget to do this thing you were excited about. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then your energy is spent. Well, it's like yeah. being a politician. Yeah. You spend half of your time raising money. Yeah. Literally half. That's, well. Or 60%. Yeah. Of your time on the phone raising money. I did a television series about the Senate. And is, no. you know who wrote this was... Uh, Larry O'Donnell, Lawrence O'Donnell. You know who he is? He does a show on MSNBC called Oh, I do know him. Word I didn't know that he Stone. wrote... Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, this is a while ago. Mm-hmm. And I played, you know, the head of the finance committee. Mm-hmm. And it was for NBC. And they said, Larry, do we have to talk so much about fundraising? He said, that's all they do. Don't you understand? Yeah. They fundraise 60% of the time. Well, that's, so it's important. You have to say, this is what... Yeah. yeah. You know, and that's that's not a good system, you know, when no. you're spending all your time asking people for money. No, it's not a good system where you have to, at minimum, raise a million just to run. So, uh, thank you so much, Harris Yulin, for taking the time to share your insights, your fear of My pleasure. If and I had any insights, that would be great. No, you do have many insights you're, for your vast and varied career and for adding your voice to the creative process. My pleasure. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Brad Young and Gabriela Garcia Salvi. Digital Media Coordinator was Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.